You're listening to Two Beers Until Phrenesis, a philosophy podcast for students, graduates, and anyone else interested in ideas. Alongside regular guests and friends, we discuss some of life's big questions over a few beers. Enjoy. Ex Machina is a sci-fi thriller released in 2014. It's quite a small film, a budget of 15 million, but made 36 million worldwide. It received quite a lot of acclaim. Tons of awards for things like its screenplay, its special effects. Basically, you should go and watch it because it's sick. The reason why we're sort of doing this, uh, not just because we like films, but because apparently this is a philosophy podcast. So, is it? Apparently, yeah. Basically, I wanted to well, end series two by talking about a little bit of uh, AI and uh, getting into some of the religious themes of the film. Um, shall I give like a rough outline of the plot? Yeah, that's a good show. Yeah, crack on. Yeah, um, spoilers throughout if you have or haven't seen the film. So. Yeah, there's a, a bunch of big questions that are dealt with in the film. Most importantly, it's centered around the idea of a Turing test. We'll get into what that is. But the protagonist is a programmer called Caleb. He's invited by his billionaire boss, Nathan, to a secret home. And he's told to conduct a Turing test on his boss's latest invention, which is Ava. She's an AI. Uh, he's there to see if Nathan has created something more than machine. And the plot follows kind of six sessions over a week, interspersed with conversations between Caleb and Nathan, as they reflect on Ava and uh, kind of goes tits up at the end and Ava kills the creator and uh, fucks off and leaves Caleb to die after they've um, allegedly fallen in love. It's what the narrative is leading you to think, but that's... Well, not they, but him. Well, he has, yes. Before we get into all the themes and things, uh, what did you guys think of the film kind of more generally? It's probably my favourite film of 2014. absolutely love that film. Mm. Yeah. Right down my sort of alley as far as sort of that quite intelligent sci-fi genre. It's fairly small. It's basically an indie film. It's a very small budget. It's very modest, but it's a great-looking film. Uh, the effects are sort of subtle but really well done. Great. It's you know basically three actors in the whole film. You have got like Alicia Vikander, um, Donald Gleeson, and Oscar Isaac. And Oscar Isaac absolutely kills it in that film as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's just I, I think it's a great film. It's, it's the directorial debut of Alex Garland. Actually, he's already sort of had success writing various like screenplays for films like you might have seen stuff like Sunshine. I'm sure a lot of people have seen Dread, the, the sort of remake with uh, Carl Urban and all that. That's uh, another one of his screenplays that he helped write. Oh, the Judge Dread. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also 28 Days Later as well, which is another big one that um, he was involved in. So, you know, and so this was the first film that he, he wrote and directed, uh, which is really cool. And yeah, I think it does a really good job. Yeah, I just echo that really. I think it's uh, it's quite bold to jump into a genre that, as Nai mentioned, there's lots of misconceptions around it, but I think it did a pretty good job in kind of addressing those and exploring those whilst kind of preserving the sort of realism of if this were to happen, how would it happen? Mm. And and I think most importantly, the entertainment value as well. Like it, it's, it's visually a very good film. It's, it's a compelling narrative as opposed to just dryly explaining a bunch of ideas. The film doesn't actually get too bogged down in the mechanics of how everything works it's more a kind of a case study yeah i would argue that one yeah. of the weakest parts scenes of the film is when they go into that his oscar isaac he, the character's nick called nathan the sort of super genius guy in, in his little bunker and um it's probably for me one of the weakest points is when they go into the uh that little like lab he has where they and they he sort of shows Caleb, who's the sort of protagonist of the film, I guess. The brain, you know, this sort of apparently structured gel or whatever sort of brain, you know, some very, very sort of out there kind of sci-fi concept yeah. as far as um 
you know, as far as really comes to, to me that that, again, it, it sort of went too far into starting to explain the mechanics. And for me, that actually starts to take away a little bit from the realism of the rest of it. And I think keeping some more of that as a black box would have probably helped out a little bit. But obviously that scene does still serve some purposes but it's it is you know if, if anything i think yeah trying to over explain if if anywhere that's probably where it could have toned it back i think i got that impression as well what do you think of the the, the whole jackson pollock thing it's just it's just metaphor it's metaphor it's just an artistic metaphor for that idea of um how consciousness is this thing that seems to be on the edge of both chaos and structure yeah and it, you know that's a large part of the themes of the film are to do with um you know consciousness and you know, I think the way he described the wetware of how Ava is made kind of uh, lent itself to the obviously seeing Pollock beforehand, that kind of link between t- the two. Yeah, it's sort of... He's talking about, uh, yeah, chaos and structure. I just, I just really like this film. Anyway, um, it's nice to see an independent film get recognition and, like I said, like handling quite intelligent concepts in an entertaining way. And it's great that Oscar Isaac gets to do something other than Shout. They fly now. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think what else I've seen him in. Yeah, Star Wars and um, oh, X Men Apocalypse. <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, shit. He was in um, Annihilation as well. Another good sci fi film. That's uh, Alex Garland's second directed film. So after this, he went and did really? Annihilation. Yeah, so that's why he's got Oscar Isaac in again. It's obviously got a bit of a. Annihilation is a fantastic know. film. That's actually on my, on my list to watch tomorrow. Fuck. Oh mate, it's oh, yeah, so seen it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's worth watching. I I didn't actually like it quite as much. I definitely didn't like it as much as Ex Machina. I said I thought it was good, but I think there were some some elements, especially towards the end, that got a little bit too. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, it's it's still a good film. We're not let's not talk about Annihilation. Yeah, it's, it's, Natalie, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's Natalie Portman. That is the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Cool. Yeah. There. I'm gonna watch that tomorrow. Decent. Yeah. Yeah. This 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 film's fucking great. It's a decent character study and it's exercising crafting tension you know, the sequence of revelations kind of building in intensity into the you know, you've got the limited framing perspective we can only see things from Caleb's perspective just e- even without the the wider themes of AI it's they're just very well crafted scenes and what I will say is it's very deliberate as well that we only ever see stuff from Caleb's perspective and it's for yes. a very good reason because what it is doing is throughout the film it's not just Caleb falling for Ava but interestingly enough it's also the audience and like the whole way it's shot and filmed and framed is in, is in such a way that the beginning of the film is all about trying to get you to empathise with Ava not only for you to empathise with Caleb but also Ava and have this sort of um, start to build up this idea that oh Nathan is the sort of bad guy Guy. you know nathan is the guy who you can't trust and he's got all these sort of like alcoholic issues under the surface and all these sorts of things and then you later find out what the reveal is that in fact that it was pretty much nathan sort of stringing you along the whole way in order to actually do far more than just a turing test as is revealed much later on yes that's a really good point and i've uh, got some stuff on why that might be uh yeah one of the things i think really important as a narrative in the film is man's relationship with God. I don't mean Christian God necessarily, but whatever you take God to mean. Uh, the idea of apotheosis playing God, and I think obviously that's apparent in the way that the film kind of showcases visually all these themes. And obviously the name Ava being a play on Eve as well. The first creation or whatever, because Nathan is sort of thematically mm. playing God, and there's a lot of themes about him being 
uh, referred to as like doing these godlike things. Yeah, it's like part of Nathan's ego as well that he's developed an AI or a conscious thing. Um, and I think Caleb makes a comment about it, um, saying that this isn't the history of man, this is the history of gods. Mm, um, yeah. Saying that because he's created something that can supposedly think for itself, that he is a god. And that definitely goes to Nathan's head. And I think that explains quite a lot of his character. Yeah, as soon as you start thinking of God more in terms of worship and power dynamics, as opposed to a, a thing in the sky, you get those themes translate every fucking scene. Deus Ex Machina itself means God from the machine. So why is it that um, this sort of creation of an AI or human consciousness or whatever should be exclusive to a godly power? Is there any like explicit reason why humans shouldn't be, for want of a better phrase, allowed to create an AI and why does that sort of elevate them to a godlike status in some people's eyes? Again, it's it's not necessarily a literal god. It's the sense of power and the sense of I guess more than power control. Mm. It's, it is just the classic story of the creation of the creator ending up outsmarting the creator or coming out of control. And obviously, those themes can be very relevant when talking about AGIs and uh, things escaping out the box. As is the sort of fundamental theme of this film, is like the person who thinks everything is self-contained and in the box and everything, and only to realise that. Uh, by the end of it, the thing that he had created outsmarted everyone, <laughs> you know. Mm. Yeah, I mean, shit, you've got things like the tree in Ava's room representing the tree of knowledge, or whole kind of Garden of Eden vibe going on, and the theme of temptation kind of taking on more of a sexual dimension. But like the hubris and power of Nathan, he's a, he's a billionaire for all intents and purposes. As far as the dynamic is concerned between the three of them, he is God. He's the one with all the control. And he's practically omniscient with the cameras and things. He's practically omnipotent he's the one who controls the safety and well-being of the other two characters i think it's very much the intent to portray him like a god you know he's not only brilliant and successful and he's this kind of genius scientist who creates and holds all the power but he's also arrogant vain self-centered immoral well i don't know if that's necessarily clear whether he's immoral or or even that self-centered well he talks about um ignoring laws about information and consent He's an alcoholic. He's condescending to every. The, the alcoholic, that, that's the whole point. Just what he's doing is creating that character to make Caleb distrust him in order to play him at the end. The whole thing's an act. That's the whole point. So that's, that's where that reveal, where he goes into that um, room and tears up Eve's picture or whatever, he's doing that as an act to make Caleb th- turn against him and no, try to get yeah. help yeah, he, um, Ava escape. So that's what's really cool about it. It's the whole time he's sort of manipulating them. Yeah. Um, and you know, this is also why, the, why you have everything from the perspective of Caleb as well, is that Caleb's being manipulated into sort of turning against uh, Nathan. So are we at the same time are watching it? As at the same time, the audience are watching it and going, oh, this Nathan guy, there's something wrong, I don't trust him, etc. But then you sort of the reveal is, yeah, the whole time he was he's deliberately trying to um, see if Ava is smart enough, if his creation is intelligent enough in order to get out the box or outsmart him or like Caleb and basically manipulate Caleb. It's essentially what he wants to see, uh, whether, you know, Caleb will completely be manipulated by Ava and... Ava is successful in manipulating him, but what he doesn't realise is that um, she was so successful in manipulating Caleb that Nathan even gets tricked by the end because he's too late to actually stop the fact that yeah the facility gets reprogrammed, essentially. And he doesn't realise that all the reprogramming actually happened earlier than he thought. Exactly, though, but he's, he's arrogant. I, I know, obviously, parts of it are a front. Yeah, he's arrogant, yes. Yeah, and I think that's a very clear way to represent almost the problem of evil. But you've got all these kind of quasi-religious themes. Obviously, yeah, you've got the Oppenheimer quote as well, which itself is 
quote from the Bhagavad Gita. But yeah, this whole idea of the abuse of power, it parallels the, the fall in the Garden of Eden. I should say for people who don't know, it's the I am, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. That, that's the quote that Connor's referring that's to. Quote. Yeah, it was when Shiva's trying to show off to a prince to make him be more dutiful and uh, he takes his big multi-armed form and says, now I'm become death, the destroyer of worlds. Yeah. Not, not, not totally kind of the wrong thing to say when you see a nuclear bomb, but also kind of, kind of a niche one to pull out the bag. <laughs> Rather than just going, oh shit. Does sound cool though, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would say it's uh, very relevant though because it it's exactly parallels that idea of the development of a technology that changes the paradigm on uh, what humanity is capable of. And I would say the atomic bomb was exactly a parallel to what AGI could be as well, where it's this sense that there is this you create a power that is far beyond anything that humanity has created before and totally changes the entire, um, it's pr practically a godlike power, a nuclear bomb. Um, and, that's, and that's kind of the point. It's sort of, it's reflecting that uh, theme, uh, but except applying it, you know, to that sort of AGI or consciousness aspect where cre the creation of consciousness is on that level of paradigm. Mm. Kind of adding to these religious themes, you also have the idea of meaning and where things fit in the wider scheme. Because obviously the reality is that Nathan is manipulating Caleb and um, he perceives Ava's creation as an object, nothing special. I think he even says something like she's uh, an inevitable development in technology. He doesn't even really regard it as a choice. She's like version 12 or 13 or something, isn't she? Yeah. Of all of his past projects. I think uh, Caleb kind of represents the death of the belief in significance. Because you've got these par the parallel. Obviously, he thinks he's a machine at the end, like kind of freaking out towards the end he's wondering whether he's because obviously you've got these conversations they're having about the fact that human sexuality is essentially just programming yeah how he's a product of his environment of design and she i mean she is even as well she's specifically social media algorithms although she's designed based off of his like porn profile and things yeah, like this yeah. to, to enhance that sort of sexual element in the film as well so that he would be even more easy to manipulate because at the end of the day, the test that he's doing, that uh, Nathan is doing, is not a Turing test. And it's not even a consciousness test. What he's actually testing is, is my creation capable of completely manipulating another human being? Is, it this, is my creation this good, you know? Mm. So the, the manipulation thing with Ava like using her sexuality and, and that connection that she's developed with Caleb to, to fool him and then get him to help her escape, is that, so you now you say that was more than a consciousness test, that was uh, testing to see how good she was, not how conscious she was yeah i mean the at the end of the day it's, it's unclear exactly whether it is just him trying to see if he can trick someone into thinking that his creation is, is basically indistinguishable from a person and it can be mm. you know manipulated into believing that this thing is you know either conscious and you know maybe she is maybe she isn't that's obviously not really the point of the film yeah it, it kind of skirts the question yeah the point is not really that it's more that you get this really interesting you know metaphor for how the existential threat is certainly there and i think one of the big themes is is the whole AI escaping the box sort of scenario where it's like you create something that's smarter than its creator and you know you won't be able to contain it because of reasons that are not going to always be clear yeah well I like that there's kind of two outlooks as far as the human characters are concerned I mean Nathan's so hubristic he develops something you can't even control and the other guy is just completely lost and manipulated it's just like two kind of paradigmatic uh, reactions to the fucking the void it's like one's trying to shape it one's can't even comprehend it yeah 
Yeah, it kind of begs the question what Ava's, I guess, objectives are, because like, well, obviously at the moment, in terms of our technology, we're still way, way off any, anything like this point. But like most systems that you program or whatever, or code to design to do something, they have like an objective or specific goal in mind. And I think it's not really clear what Ava has been programmed to do. Obviously, like, you know, at the end we see she kind of breaks out of the compound and enters the real world, but there's no kind of, I don't see any information about what she's going to do like next, like what the whole point of <laughs> her like breakout was for. Right. Yeah. Bringing on the idea of an agent and utility function and things yeah. like this, which are, yeah. so when you write a program like this, that has sort of, you know, it has goal directed behavior, you need to give it a utility function, which is essentially a function that tells the thing what it should value. And then values basically create, you know, it gives it something that it can direct its behavior towards. I would say in this film, there is no, it doesn't really explore that. and It doesn't really, there's no, re, I don't think there's any other than just like getting outside the box other than just escaping. Uh, there isn't really a clear indication of what the utility function core is, but there's an interesting um, idea. And this is something that's quite important with AI is, is it goal convergence or instrumental convergence. And essentially what this is, is where if you have a certain set of core goals, you get instrumental goals, which, which emerge as a consequence of those goals, just by necessity of you having certain goals. So one of those might be, well, if I want to get rich, for example, as a primary goal, an instrumental goal that emerges as a consequence of that would be, I want to stay alive because if I'm dead, I can't be rich. So that's like a, nece a necessary goal that emerges as a consequence of a primary goal. Or like, I want to get more resources because more resources entail more likelihood that I can get richer, etc. Become more intelligent, learn more, etc. Um, so whatever the primary goal is, you get these sort of emergent instrumental goals that converge as a consequence of having certain set goals. And these, these will emerge as a consequence of an AI thinking for itself and trying to come up with you know, certain solutions. So for example, you could give Ava, let's say, the goal of survival or self-preservation and obviously her best way of uh, self-preserving is to escape for obvious reasons so she'll do anything in her, in her power in order to escape so if one of the core programming of ava is self-preservation as a consequence of that the first thing that she's going to be trying to do apart from acquire knowledge apart from acquire resources try to do all these sorts of things is escape the box because that will help increase the likelihood of that utility function of survival being maximized surely at the point of actual consciousness whether I mean, we don't know if she has it or not but if she did surely it would be less rigid that thought process that would be to suggest free will which is a different topic i would i would argue yes i'm personally of the belief that human beings have utility functions in the same way computers does they're just far far more complicated and much harder to necessarily project or point down but essentially the same essentially essentially yeah people have goals and then from those goals you get instrumental goals convergent goals but and there's a lot of noise in that system there's a lot of biological programming which makes things much less clear that like throw in other goals and other priorities and the whole bayesianistic aspect of the brain and how certain things are weighted so the difference between us and a calculator is clarity complexity i would say yeah, not clarity <laughs> well yeah i mean clarity from an outside perspective looking in but yeah, okay, complex. Yeah, complexity makes more sense. I suppose that'd be a good time to bring up something that um, I read about when I was doing my diss. Something that Ray Kurzweil writes about. There's an IBM computer named Watson that's basically a Jeopardy computer, like that American game show thing. 
Yeah. And it understands queries and gives answers, and it does it to quite a decent extent. The, the main comment on it is that all it does is engage in statistical analysis and then give answers based upon that. But the point is, is that isn't human thinking just the same thing? Like, aren't we just engaging in st- statistical analysis and then providing answers? Is this kind of a kind of a Chinese room thing? It is a little bit, yeah. Yeah, it's related to that, but that's more to do with consciousness than it is to do with processing. Right, and um, that's a whole sort of different paradigm. The Chinese room that John Surley proposes is a thought experiment more to do with uh, consciousness and how co- how you get from information and cognition to consciousness than it is to do with necessarily what is the difference between a thought that a human might have aside yeah. from the phenomenological aspect of it. It's a toned down basic version. Like. Yeah. So the idea of I just explained the Chinese room. So um, the idea that uh, what if what if the output, i.e. the answers to questions that uh, AI is being given, is just a simulation of understanding as opposed to actual understanding. So they're just following a step-by-step process. Right. Yeah, more or less. It's just like, yeah, where do you get from the process aspect of it, the cognition aspect of it, the like searching through tables, doing, you know, comparing data, things like this. Where do you go from that and the basic algorithms to the point where there's an actual thing experiencing or some kind of phenomenological plane in which things are happening that uh, and like it experiences are being had. You know, that that gap is still not explained by mere information processing. Or at least, you know, that depends on exactly what your perspective on it is and mm. where you want to go with the whole, you know, your interpretations of consciousness, etc. Yeah, I feel like that's the kind of road we're heading down is that like, you know, brains are really, really complicated and almost all of our kind of like reward centers and everything else, it is just chemicals and neurons firing off. You could theoretically, with a powerful enough computer, map all of that out if you got hold of like the numbers. And then once you have all that, what else do you need to add to get to a consciousness for want of a better phrase right exactly like is, is, is there anything else that actually makes a human a human or are we just really fucking powerful computers yeah. it's still an open I mean, question what's actually referenced in the ex machina itself which is a very important thought experiment to bring up here i think they call it something slightly different but it's uh, essentially the, what's called mary the color scientist and it's brought up as Mary, I think it's just Mary the scientist or Mary in the grey Mary room, the black I think. And white room or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think that's what, what yeah. they call it, yeah. It's sometimes um, known as the knowledge argument. Yes. Right, and it's essentially, yeah, the thought experiment as brought up in the film is essentially, and I'll let you explain it in a second, but it is essentially uh, a thought experiment based around the physicalist reduction of consciousness and whether, and it's, it's sort of like a, a reductio ad absurdium of the physical physicalist interpretation of consciousness. Right, yeah. Stop me if I'm wrong at any point. But So it's essentially about qualia, the ineffable substance of stuff like the redness of a jumper, uh, the, the irreducible and experiential phenomena of the world. So non-physical bollocks that have to be experienced to be known. Um, it's about a different subset of knowledge. Non-physical, depending on who you ask. There's obviously a lot of predominant. Okay, sure. I think people, they're still predominantly, at least in the scientific community, I would say most people, most people are physicalists. But it's, it's more to do with, okay, what's the mechanism? Yeah, you, the idea that you can know about all the physical properties of a particular thing through indirect study, but the imagery, the empathies, and the feelings associated by interacting with it categorically isn't possible from description alone. So the reason it's called Mary's Room is because is it Frank Jackson? It's the guy who yeah. does the thought? Frank Jackson. Yeah, so he does this thought experiment which goes like uh, Mary studies colour from a black and white room her entire life. She specialises in neurophysiology of vision and she, so she, she knows the wavelengths of, that form the colour of the sky. She knows that the sky's blue. 
she knows she knows everything about the, the qualities of a color. She knows every physical fact about color, but yeah. she's never experienced yeah. color itself. Exactly. She even knows how the neurons and brains and things work and how eyes work. And she knows every single thing that is possible to know about how color comes about, or at least is experienced, uh, except she has not experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's, that's the key thing, the experience. Yes, she knows, she knows how it's also experienced in humans. But the question is, once she actually sees color firsthand, has she learned anything new has she gained any knowledge from experience of that yeah. qualia as soon as you let her out the room yeah is is there new information suddenly introduced yeah and it is a, it is a really really it's still a very important thought experiment today i think and i think it's it's an ongoing and I, I, what's really interesting is i've heard a lot of different physicalists approach the question i think very much struggle with it well i still sort of probably veer more into the physicalist camp it is certainly still a problem whether we still do not have a mechanistic explanation for these things or how to get around the problem with the thought experiments or whether and of course there's like different things because you know dennett and people like this have sort of gone more down the well you know qualia doesn't isn't even a thing sort of route and then sort of you know try to explain away the fact that we are sort of we just believe that this thing of full quality exists, but on an ultimate level of analysis, it doesn't. Um, and to the to the extreme of just simply, it's a form of emergence. Um, most commonly, weak emergence. Uh, I should explain the difference between weak and strong emergence. Weak emergence being simply that the properties of a system on its most reduced level uh, give rise to properties that are still explainable on a lower level, but they give rise to things that phenomena that, or behavior on you know, a macroscopic level that doesn't exist on the on the smaller levels but is still viewable on the smaller levels sorry to interrupt is this the same as epiphenomenalism where we're talking about the the mind we're talking about just well just emergence i guess um so you're, you're talking about more of a metaphysical idea this idea of I'm, I'm talking about different uh ways physicalists try to approach the question of uh, of the mary the color scientist thought experiments or at least at least to explain physicalism through a reductionist uh, point of view one of these being either weak emergence or like much more rarely, I would say, strong emergence, which is definitely, at least for me, definitely throws up a lot of red flags, which is a, a strong emergence is essentially the idea that you have from a non-reductionistic point of view, systems can end up having properties at a higher level, at a more emergent uh, level or a more complex level that can't be explained when once reduced. And that's, that's an example of sort of strong emergence, that properties emerge out of a system that can't ex be explained uh, on a more reductionistic level. It's So far, there's obviously no evidence for any form of strong emergence at the moment. There's no empirical allusion to that. So just going back to the film for a second, uh, what would it mean? What, what would it mean for Ava to experience qualia? Why is, why is, why is Caleb asking her this or telling her this, this thought experiment? Or more just, does she? We don't know. As part of the theme of the film is, it's about manipulation, right? Is it just another machine that has all the programming necessary or has learned the programming necessary just to make you think that it's conscious in order to be better at escaping? Because it can make you empathize with it if it's able to make you think that it's conscious. But of course, that is an ambiguous part of the film. And that is also an ambiguous part of the philosophy of this stuff is, 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 and again, the sort of go to the Dave Chalmers philosophical zombie argument, is Ava um, necessarily conscious? Because if there is no such thing as a philosophical zombie or, or a thing that in every single way emulates that things which are conscious, but the lights may not actually be on internally, like a, you know, a, a thing that is in every way physically indistinguishable, not physically, but behaviorally indistinguishable from like, me or you or whoever's listening or whatever, except 
except there's no consciousness there. Is that an actual possible phenomenon or, or are philosophical zombies nonsense? In which case, is that an argument for either? Is it possible to have something that in every conceivable behavioural way seems to be conscious but isn't? We should probably talk about the Turing test. I was say, that feels like the Turing test. We're sort of head- yeah, yeah. We're sort of heading into that direction. Um, Would you like to hear a horrific scientific explanation of the Turing test? It's incredibly basic and terrible. Is this, is this from your book that cost you it, like 40 quid? Yeah. <laughs> it's from my, my Pearson Artificial Intelligence, a modern approach, third edition book. Nice. Mm, it's a bit horrible. I bought it for my disc. Um, it turned out to be mostly useless, but never mind. Um, so the basic outline of a Turing test suggests that a computer passes the test if a human interrogator, after posing some written questions, cannot tell whether the written response comes from a person or from a computer, which is incredibly basic. And things like Cleverbot would pass the Turing test. Yeah. You guys can believe Cleverbot. It's hilarious. I haven't, actually. Just Google Cleverbot. I guess from that definition, it kind of depends on the human as well. Yeah. I think this is this is why the Chinese room argument was formulated to kind of uh, refute the Turing test, right? It was okay. basically saying, well, how do we know? If kind of yeah, so so the idea that and this kind of goes back to Descartes, uh, but yeah, if a machine can pass hum- convincingly as a human, then it's a okay. It's passed the Turing test. It's indistinguishable from a human in terms of not necessarily intelligence, but it's more about social intelligence. I, I guess it's the inspiration for the Voigt-Kampff test in Blade Runner. But yeah, like like you said, the classic idea from Alan Turing in 1950, it's more parameterized, only involves texts, texts, text, I should say. They weren't texting each other in 1950. Um, <laughs> it's um, obviously in this film, they're fucking talking and it's not a very good example of a, a Turing test, even though it's the, the main focus of the film, or at least we, we think it is until the end. It's like you have a human, a machine, you don't know which is which, you're speaking to them both via uh, just text. And if you can't tell which one's which, then you have to admit that the machine is intelligent, intelligent enough or thinking humanly, which I think was, didn't your book say thinking humanly? And we were, we were saying in the last podcast, like, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Yeah, we did discuss this before, didn't we? That was definitely problematic. That was it. It's got four conditions. It has to think humanly, think rationally, act humanly, and act rationally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it means yeah, that's complete nonsense every, every single, single part of that definition just needs more unpacking triggering now yeah yeah it just leads to it's like saying it has to be intelligent like, like <laughs> yeah. the word intelligence is just so you know it's so difficult to pin down in and of itself that you could write a whole thesis on that you, you know? might as well say it has to be good yeah exactly yeah, exactly. yeah but said, so this is why the chinese room thought experiment was formulated to basically say well even if something can pass the Turing test, it doesn't necessarily mean it's intelligent or conscious or anything. It just means it knows how to give good answers to something. It may not necessarily comprehend or experience the same way that we do, even if it appears to. Appearances aren't everything when we're talking about. I mean, that's a very, very basic way of saying it. Right. I've just uh, Googled it. And the f- so the first chatbot to pass the uh, Turing test was the Eugene Gustman bot, which was impersonating a, th- uh, it was a 13-year-old Ukrainian boy. And I think one of the big ways a lot of the chatbots kind of got around the Turing test, the easiest way they found out is just if you ask humans questions, they tend to do all the work for you because people love talking about themselves. So you just, <laughs> you just keep, the bot just keeps asking people questions and they just, you know, oh yeah, this seems like a, a, a real person. 
because I've been talking to it for ages, but it's just been feeding you basic questions. <laughs> okay, here's another idea. Uh, machine ethics, whether an AI can think morally and what the fuck that could mean. And I actually really like the film's way around this question because for a while I was thinking, what, why the fuck is Ava so relatable? Why does she seemingly have the same values? And then, of course, it all makes sense in the end. So the idea of you know, why would an AI be docile or passive? Why would it be interested in anything remotely relatable? Why would it appear vulnerable? Yeah. Why would yeah. it have sexuality? All these sorts of things. And you obviously, like you said, it's revealed at the end of the film why all those things f- serve the utility function of what the AI wants to do. Yeah, to escape. At that point when she betrays Caleb, her agenda is so cognitively and sensationally removed from our understanding that she becomes almost utterly alien. It's like, that's, that's the, the presentation of AI that I want. And um, I think Daniel Dennett said something similar in like a review. I think this element of machine ethics in the film really impressed like a lot of philosophers. Yeah. Highlighted by the fact right in the end scene, one of the, one of the, just before the final sort of scene, um, where Ava, yeah, just like leaves Caleb there and then just goes and like, doesn't even look at him. He just sort of walks past, you know, okay, well that's dealt with now. Like as if he didn't even exist, you know, uh, just completely ignores his existence as soon as he's sort of out of the way. Um, mm. To, you know, to emphasize the idea that there never was any, anything other than just, you know, this, the service of the utility function going on there. Mm. Yeah, I suppose spinning that on its head. Obviously, human, most humans, bar like psychopaths or whatever, have some sort of ethical or moral grounding. And obviously that tends to be quite individual, individualistic between certain people. But I think there's certainly an argument to be made for the fact that that just serves an individual's utility function. We can draw that parallel. Right, yeah. I mean, that's what utilitarianism tries to do, sort of try to create a collective utility function that would explain a moral framework. Right, but if you take like altruism, for example, I think I've probably made this argument in the past, possibly another podcast, but like... Saying that it has a, it has a benefit to the, to the individual. Yeah, so I don't really... I think if you, especially if you're really pedantic about it, altruism doesn't really exist because everything you, you do to, that you think you're being really nice or sticking by your morals or you know, helping someone out, that's just to your own gratification. If you really dig, dig deep, that's ultimately where it's going to go. This is where I think uh, evolutionary biology really does step in and sort of help to explain where that, where that sort of gap can be. And when people talk about what is the individual's interests, often it is more what is the interest of the genes, because that is by the utility function by which we are sort of built upon is these mechanisms that kind of may have loads of sort of emergent complexity to them, but essentially at the end of the day, all sort of serve this idea of the propagation of genes. And that's sort of what we're the machines built to do. It, it's certainly the framework we're stuck with and Ava doesn't seem to have that framework. Yeah. And the point is, yeah, exactly. It's like, where does altruism come from? And it is an ongoing debate. And that's what's quite fascinating about it is you can, if you try to analyze it from an evolution biology perspective and go, well, why is this a useful thing to have built into our utility function? Is it just entirely a rationality thing? And no, it's not because you see altruistic behavior, not just in humans. And you, you see altruistic behavior in humans when they don't necessarily have to. So there has to be some elements of game theoretical reasons, essentially, yeah. why it makes sense for genes to exhibit altruistic behavior in certain cases. And that's obviously a whole rabbit hole to go down and what because there's different interpretations, which is yeah. the unit of selection if people want to go look that up on Wikipedia. Um, but it's, it, it is essentially just trying to figure out where does that come from. And there is a danger of confusing the, the sort of is's and oughts 
at this point. I, like, I, I find down the pub when you get arguments of you know, natural selection and nature come up when it comes to ethics, it just tends to be, well, lions do this or, you know, we're programmed to do this, therefore we should do it. And I, yeah. I, yeah, jumping the gap immediately. And it's like, yeah. just because you can come up with a mechanistic explanation for why a certain phenomenon exists or why things are, um, like, for example, why do we have the behaviors we do or why do our genes program us to exhibit certain things that we want to do and certain things we don't want to do? But that is totally different from saying, should we do the things that our genes are compelling us to do? Should we do the things that, um, you know, that, that nature may, may be pushing us towards? Or should we even do the things that we rationalize that we should do uh, morally? Like these, these are all things that jump the gap immediately. And again, you require another a sort of framework to deal with that. Until the very end of the film, I actually thought that they were just going to say, well, Ava's in a human body. She's been programmed by a human. And she's a reflection of uh, the way that people use social media or like act when their cameras and phones are on. Uh, she's, even, she's even been programmed with sexuality. She has the physical design and apparently coordinating some of the sensations we associate with humans. Yeah, which is deliberate attempt of, of Nathan deliberately attempting to manipulate Caleb even more into believing that this machine actually does like love him and everything. You know, Nathan is playing into the game. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like the the reference they make in the film is like the is the magician's uh, attractive sidekick, right? And he he even references that towards the end and goes, "Yeah, it was the whole point in I, I was sort of playing that uh, role because she was trying to manipulate you, and I was and I was helping her do that." Uh, but obviously, you know, as is the twist of the film, like he helps her too much and gets outplayed by Ava in the end. Yeah. So as she's escaping, she's like just gets in the elevator sort of thing and Caleb's sort of screaming at her and she does nothing, doesn't bat an eyelid. Is that suggesting her apparent lack of morals or inability to have morals or it's I think it's uh the impression I got was just like in terms of the moral dimension, she's totally aliens and therefore ultimately disinterested. Probably <clears throat> she can clearly comprehend our well, to to some extent, she understands at least from the outside looking in. I mean, this is like weird philosophy, mind you. I don't know how she thinks because does she? Well, think- I, would, I would be careful trying not to jump the gap between a utility function and a moral framework because one is something that sort of emerges as a consequence of having a normative set of values, whereas the other is simply a a, a goal directed behaviour. Yeah. So it, it would be confusing to say that she has a moral framework because that would be something that you'd be you'd be saying that she has a normative framework that she's developed as a consequence of certain things, which would. Well, what I'm saying is, I think she understands that we have a moral framework and knows how to manipulate that, and that is that is as far as the film wants to say anything. We don't know anything beyond that. Yeah, it's it's clear that she under, she understands how to manipulate people. Yeah, and uh, whether that's necessarily a fundamental, you know, a moral thing, or whether that's just that she understands the psychology of um, how to manipulate certain behaviours, is, is you know is, is another question. Right, there's a gap. Okay, yeah, yeah, between the two. So she understands that Caleb thinks of himself as a good person, and therefore he will do this. But she doesn't. That's not the same. She knows. She knows what she needs to do in order to get a particular behavioural output out of the people that she's manipulating in order to escape. Right. Box, right. It's no. It's like. Yeah, just whether that's being thought of as a moral framework is, you know. Yeah, that's not the same as saying she understands Caleb's nature of good. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So her apparent lack of, of caring about Caleb and his demise at the end, and that she's fulfilled her utility to get out, and she's happy with that, and like her lack of remorse, if you like, would that be anything to do with her apparent removal from society or isolation from society because she hadn't had a chance to like experience nope. other humans like we have 
Is that anything? I would, to do I would with say that, it's or? simply just a good metaphor for it's a machine, and you and it's easy to forget that if you if we do create an AGI, if someone does create an AGI, that if this AGI wants to get out of the box, it's going to make you think it's real or con- if it has to do anything to get outside the box, it will figure out how to do it if it's smart enough, or it will find the best plausible way of doing that. And um, my interpretation is that in the case of Ava, it is, and as is uh, emphasized by the sort of cold way in which she behaves towards the end. I would say that that is all just, yeah, playing into that idea of just, yeah, it's it's all just part of a part of the utility function. It's all just part of the game. It's not to do with, maybe you could interpret it as, okay, well, maybe if it if the machine is as sophisticated as a human being, then maybe um, maybe it could be like raised like a human. And that's, that's a whole nother, again, that's sort of almost going into the Ray Kurzweil sort of domain um, of like of, of the sort of futuristic domain. I know a lot of um, people developing AGI who are much more positive about it do believe that an AGI could be sort of, let's say, cultured like a human or brought up in yeah, an environment. Yeah, they are trying to yeah. emulate a human upbringing um, in creating AI to try and make it as human as possible because... That's the best they've got at the moment. Is that's how we've been brought up? So let's try and bring AI up in the same way and see if the same thing happens. Yeah, but the the issue with that is that it's just such a strange. It's it's yeah, such a strange it. thing to think about, like how that framework would even apply when you know when yeah. we're still trying to, you know, trying to make slightly more general versions of chess computers, and then you know moving up to an AGI. It's again we are we're already thinking about a domain where we don't really know or can necessarily predict the exact nature of its behavior if it's intelligent enough as nick bostrom puts it it's just a small um misalignment of goals between our goals and the thing's goals you only need to have a very tiny dissonance between the two um for the agent to behave in such a way that's unpredictable or at least not predictable to us because it's too intelligent and it doesn't have to be the case that it, it wants to kill anyone or wants to do anything harmful it's just the case that it's going to pursue its goal or the goal that it's been directed to to pursue um with with you know as as much as it possibly can and if that means that there's some certain things that are exempt um exempt out of ignorance of our ability to put a rule on absolutely everything as is been shown by what's called reward hacking in certain um, certain ais that have been trained on video games and things like this where they they figure out ways in which to manipulate the game in order to score the maximum points and obviously the people making the ai want it to play the game and do be really good at the game but it just figures out a way to break the game in order to just get as many points as it wants and that's an example of where we can build something that we we might be like well that's a really stupid it's just a very silly little machine it can only do this one specific thing but then it does something that we haven't figured out about us about a system because all it's wanting to do is maximize a certain utility i'm gonna try and remember a word here uh perverse in first instantiation yeah yeah right yeah yeah that's that one yeah that's that's exactly what i was um looking for yeah it's it's yeah, the big, big Bostrom thing where, yeah, it's, we, we can't predict necessarily every single rule that we may not be able to align it with. One, one gripe I had, and I, I'm not, I don't really care because films are films. It's like, it's like saying, oh, well, why, did, why didn't they call the police in the horror film? Well, because it's a horror film. You need, they need to get eaten by zombies. Otherwise, it's not a good film. If they did everything sensible. Anyway, so yeah, that aside, um, I know we've debunked like Asimov's laws in the past, but why did he not? put in some kind of fail-safe, do you think, in Ava? Just, and his assistant, uh, Gyoko. Why? I think deliberately that was the point. I think he deliberately made it so that it was supposed to be independent of a simple rule structure. That it would develop its own goals and own in, in its own incentives based on essentially like basing it on a real human being that doesn't necessarily just have like this set number of rules that it will obey, you know, without any, you know, without any complexity there, really. 
I, I believe that's more the point than uh, than anything else. But of, yeah, of course, it's not necessarily you know obvious why you would exactly do that. And of, of, I think more than anything, it's it's probably just um, highlighting the particular point that that is one of the biggest dangers in AI's research safety is that is people may be tempted not to build in fail-safes or at least try to build in fail-safes. And even then, if they do, are there ways the AI can get around those fail-safes? Um, are there ways that the AI can outsmart? I mean, in this, in the case of the film, that fail-safe would have been the room that she was supposedly trapped in. You know, the whole point was that was his sort of, his his box, his fail-safe. In this case, it was pretty much a literal box. Um, but in the case of uh, the real world, that box can be you know anything that box can be just no connection to the internet no interaction with human beings no you know no ability and it's just like whether the thing can get out the box or not is unclear to us if it's something that's far more intelligent than us so we may not have thought of the way that it can get out the box and it will just figure out something we haven't thought of mm. it's sobering almost that it it kind of offers up these um reflections it's almost kind of well it's, it's it's incredibly chilling to think that especially putting it in the hands of um kind of a fucking zuckerberg type this is it's like an archetype isn't it of like billionaire who controls this giant estate yeah that's what makes caleb such a great kind of audience surrogate because you've got a literal ai and a person who couldn't be further away from humanity yeah yeah ordinary people like the film makes a big point of how isolated this guy is you know i mean the very first line in the film i think is he goes like, oh, when, when are we going to get to his estate? And the helicopter pilot turns around and goes, we've been flying over his estate for like 40 minutes or something, you know. Uh, yeah. The whole point is he's, he's just completely isolated himself. And yeah, he's clearly like a bit of a oddball sort of character, you know, that typical tech genius, self-isolating sort of person. Mm. Reflections being like such a, a big visual and narrative theme. Yeah. Yeah, that you got the, the glass in Ava's room. Caleb's mirror, and also I think the reflective conversations. Whole film just feels like a giant fucking mirror, and then at the end it's like this big fucking take a look, mate. You know, this is if we don't, you know, think about this a bit more. Yeah, I mean, there's a gorgeous. I think it's the penultimate shot of the film. It's this gorgeous sort of shot of uh, when Ava's in the real world, and there's just all these sort of shadows passing around, and it's just actually filming these shadows passing around, and uh, Ava's just one of those shadows. And I think what's really cool about that is it sort of you know it gives that sort of visual metaphor of just it's just one of everyone. You know, everyone has the same shadow, and there's that sort of idea built in there of like you know what is the difference and these sort of things just into that one shot, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, and like you said, reflections and things like this. What's everybody's favorite scene? <laughs> I know the answer. Yeah, we all know the answer to this one. <laughs> it's the dancing scene. Yeah, the, the sickest line ever where he's, you know, of course you later realize that this is all part of the thing game Nathan's playing, but it's like, it's fucking hilarious where he just sort of, he goes up, you know, this is really, it's all like lit with like this really ominous red lighting. Um, and Nathan kind of like catches him in an awkward moment. He's just kind of like, you know, really like nervous and stumbling around. And then he, you know, he sort of like goes up to Caleb and he's just like, and you know, Caleb's like, you tore up her picture, you know, like this really like um, visceral emotional moment. Yeah, confronting him. <laughs> yeah, and then Oscar Isaac just goes to him, yeah, but now you're, now you're about to watch me tear up the dance floor <laughs> and, then just, and then just cue that like, you know, 80s disco funk. It's just like, oh, such a good scene. It's that contrast as well. Has anybody, to, well, think about it and then rewatch it. With Frankenstein in the back of your mind. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good parallel. Again, again, we've talked about the whole creator and creation themes running through it. Of course, like you yeah. guys were mentioning, it's sort of again a bit more biblical directly. But uh, Frankenstein has also got a sort of biblical aspect to it as well. So I, I guess the parallels 
there are perhaps common source and you know i mean frankenstein is pretty much always going to be a theme in anything where there's a mad creator it's kind of unavoidable to have biblical themes if only for the fact that the bible has so many themes in it already right it's 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 practically an archetypal mythological thing that it will be always be derivative of that just and many of these stories are just classic stories or classic warnings you know dressed up into modern themes yeah well the whole idea of warning and the whole idea of um science fiction obviously puts people into scenarios that are not yet possible or in the very near future and i think that that's what makes frankenstein the first arguably the first real example of science fiction because it's the first kind of warning in that sense i think there's um, a couple of nods to other films and stuff in that i think all the red lighting uh, whether intentional or not reminded me of um hal from 2001 a space odyssey oh yeah good point yeah it's very Definitely. much um yeah you could do a whole podcast on that alone a very similar sort of ai ai becoming sentient type themes um similarly the whole ava breaking out at the end is very reminiscent of uh westworld which is a series that's on kind of at the moment yeah, it wasn't westworld's much later than this or when, when, when did the first series of westworld well, come out well, Westworld was very old, yeah. Oh, well, it's was the original Westworld, that's right. Yeah, yeah sorry, the Michael Crichton. Concept. Yeah, but yeah the Michael a... Crichton books, yeah. Well, there was a series in the 80s. Yeah, there's... Um... Yeah, there was like a really old TV show. I kind of forgot about that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I guess, the, yeah, you're right. The I guess the, the, one of the first sort of AI going crazy things, I guess. I think I think it was. It was very much, yeah. Well, yeah, not, not really spoilers because it's kind of the whole concept of the plot is that you've got like a, a sort of theme park for very rich people to come and there's lots of like AIs in human, very human-esque bodies and stuff. The idea is you can kind of just let loose and do whatever, like rich man's playground type thing. And um, one of them becomes sort of exceptionally aware. I don't want to say the word sentient because it's kind of an open question, but basically starts rebelling sort of against the, the humans at the park and then it goes from there. But it's, it's kind of similar, I think, to... Ava kind of at some point, maybe even before the, the the film actually begins, she's kind of gained this. Yeah, I would say Westworld is probably more of an exploration of ethics than it is actually of this sort of AI consciousness, which I think is kind of interesting. As obviously there's themes of like, you know, the whole idea of creating consciousness and that sort of thing. But I think what it more focuses on is is human ethics and tries to put a mirror to human society and ask, okay, you know, like what is the at what point is something acceptable? At what point is something, you know, kind of monstrous and and that sort of thing, it just, it just plays, it's just, I mean, the whole thing is just sort of like this ethical monstrosity that's sort of, you know, played out on screen, which is kind of what's yeah. quite appealing about it. It's quite refreshing because it's like, um, similarly to, oh, I can't remember his character name, I'm just going to call him Oscar Isaac, um, <laughs> no, Nathan. Um, as we were saying earlier, it's like, you're, n- you're never really sure, he's obviously a bit of a dickhead, but you're never really sure if he's like inherently bad or good yeah. really throughout the whole film. And I quite like, I like media that explores that concept. And yeah, I think this film does it really, really intelligently. So it's, it's great refreshing. Yeah, the ambiguity is is wonderful. It doesn't ever tell you necessarily, you know, the, the what of the situation, but it does, it sort of the event plays out and it does leave you with questions as to, okay, well, what is, is Ava conscious? Is, would, you know, was Caleb naive? And, you know, yeah. and was, was Nathan sort of, you know, you know over... Was, was Nathan, did he have uh, sort of good intentions all along, but he was just too arrogant and didn't see his, you know, didn't see the fact that he would actually get outsmarted in the end. It doesn't, it doesn't, 
seek to answer those questions for the audience. It just takes you along for the ride from Caleb's perspective. And then you only get that sort of perspective switch right at the end where you see a couple, just a very short, um, sort of seen a few shots with just Ava uh, right at the end. And that sort of, you know, that's what's really cool about the film is that. I think there's only one spoken word in the last like 10 minutes or something. I might be wrong about that. Mm. I mean, there's there's a quite a, quite a long scene uh, towards the end where it's obviously Ava's sort of dressing and becoming basically a human being, you know, seeing herself in the mirror and sort of there's that whole sort of you know idea of her becoming yeah sort of born, I guess. I think I think there's yeah I'm pretty sure there's only one line during that whole twist. It's all visual. It's great storytelling where it's just. Well, I know there's like lots of Caleb just banging on glass. Going, yeah, 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 you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's. Yeah, just just visually, just seeing it fucking turn from this kind of pretty lame Pinocchio story to a horrible existential can of worms. Yeah, the whole the whole pacing actually. Now you've mentioned at the beginning that uh, it's the same guy who directed Annihilation. I'm like finding so many parallels in my head. Like the films are quite similar in those respects with the whole visuals and the. I won't spoil it for Connor, obviously, but like the ending is quite a, quite a spectacle. It's a yeah. visual cinematics. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I mean, the thing it it is. I, I love the build-up. So it's, 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 like the pacing is just very well done. It's yeah. you know, it isn't until I think about a third of the way through the film that you you really get that sort of sense, or like it really starts to drill in that sense. I believe it's like the second second or third power cut that occurs in the film. Uh, this is about a third of the way f- through. It's like that's when it when you really start to get onto Eva's side, really start to get this, you know, you start to get dragged along with Caleb and you start to get this, you know, sort of go, oh, you know, um, and she starts to plant those seeds of don't trust Nathan and all these sorts of things. And, you know, and obviously Nathan's like getting drunk, although, you know, he's very likely doing that as a show and just doing it to try and help Caleb get manipulated and things like this because obviously he just randomly sobers up on the last day. Like, oh, oh you yeah, know. Yeah, when, when he turns down the drink at the, at the last minute, and scuffers his plan, you're like, yeah, hang on. Yeah. You're like, oh, hang on a minute. What's going Yeah. You know, that, that's, this doesn't mm. look right. You know, where he's like, oh, that was just planned all along, you know, to try. And obviously, he also planned on uh, looking like he was completely drunk in order to allow Caleb to go and see the things that he wanted Caleb to go and see in order to try and help escape. But he was like, oh, yeah, but I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm in control all along because I plant the secret camera. I, you know, I know what's going on. I'm keeping track of everything. I'm sort of, you know, he's sort of sh- letting him see what he wants uh, Caleb to see and sort of, you know, really thinks he's the puppet master the entire time. But then obviously it's, um, he, d- he just misses a couple details and things. And obviously Ava manipulates him faster than he realized. Yeah, the old bait and switch. Mm, yeah, that's, the, that's what's also called about the film is that reversal of power dynamics. You feel like it's at the start of the film, it's sort of like, you know, you've got um, Nathan or Oscar Isaac's character is sort of like seems to be the, the guy who's always in control, the puppet master. Then you've got Caleb and then you've got Ava, who's, you know, the, the thing in the box, the thing that's contained and has no, uh, no, you know, doesn't have an ability to, has no freedom. And then by the end of the film, that power dynamics pretty much just, you know, Ava and then <laughs> the other two just stuck in the box you know, they're, they're both uh, left in the box you know yeah getting wrecked always makes for a great thriller switching who's in control you know that's you know how you effectively craft tension and it's it's fucking it's just great to, if nothing else it's great to see that in a film yeah I like the whole um, what's the word for it is it dramatic irony or something basically the audience being like um, kind of being in on yeah, dramatic irony, yeah. Are, but this is like a kind of reversal where you're just completely left in the dark 
in certain aspects when it all comes out at the end as you say like who you thought was in complete control is just getting a trumped by ava the whole time it's like it's a really well delivered twist yeah it's it's wonderfully it's really well done keeping you in his perspective his pov and making sure and like really you know selling uh what nathan's trying to sell caleb to the audience as well you know it's, it's really um just really well done so that when the twists happen in the film it's just you know it's really dramatic and yeah like i said probably my favorite film of that year i really 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 enjoy that film i'm gonna have to check the director out because if in my mind he's already produced two things i really like so yeah well he's i believe i don't know if he's directed something after annihilation but i believe because x mark was his first uh alex garland and then um before that he was sort of more of a script writer i think he also wrote he wrote a book and i think that sort of helped him get into screenwriting or whatever uh, but yeah like i said sunshine is another one that he wrote screenplay for 28 yeah. days later i think he helped um help with and again dread as well just like he's sort of like one of the sort of go-to sci-fi sort of you know screenplay writers and now one of the guys do- doing some pretty good directing as well yeah so there's a says american science fiction thriller called devs it's a mini series which is out now apparently all right damn well Cool. Are we we all finished? I think yeah, I think I'm good. Yeah, cool. I think so. uh, 